0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So this episode will be the first one of 2024, so I want to talk about a couple of goals that I have for the company and for this podcast, I'm headed into 2024. And I've been working this last week to kind of put some of those in place. I don't have everything right where I need it to, but I think I have enough that I'm comfortable putting this out on the podcast today. And I'm excited about some of the things that I'll be sharing. So a couple of things. First of all, I have talked about before on this podcast about making a Patreon account for this podcast. And I have set that up. That's now in place. So if you want some bonus content, if you want um, additional things, maybe some insider things, or it's a great way for me to get feedback from listeners, then head over to Patreon. Thanks for sharing podcast has its own Patreon account set up and you can become a member. You can follow the show. I currently have a poll since we're headed into the new year i wanted to know like how many people because i hear mixed results from clients i hear some people feel like the start of a new year is very empowering and they just love the idea of goals whether they you know follow through during the year with their goals they love that feeling of a new year i also hear from other clients how they just kind of dread the new year and all that's associated with it. I mean, I have to admit, I'm not looking forward. I'm recording this on December 30th. I'm not looking forward to Monday, which is New Year's Eve. All of the emails that are going to hit my email inbox. I hate that. Now, it's easy for me. I just usually go through and delete them all. Or it's a great time for me. I unsubscribe. But I have been unsubscribing from a lot of different things that I've signed up for randomly in the past and. But I feel like on New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, all of a sudden you find these ones that you haven't heard from for a year, but somehow you're still on their emailing list. And so, you know, I have to go delete all those. I don't look forward to that. I have a lot of clients too, who talk about just having mixed feelings or not good feelings around goal setting. Maybe that was something that their parents were more in charge of and their parents set their goal. And it wasn't necessarily something that they were in charge of setting the goal or having a say in what the goal was. So there can be some issues, some sticky issues around, I think, goals. And, you know, when we talk about the new year, so much of that is on New Year's resolutions. Or for some people, they just feel like, what's the point? Like, some of these issues in my life, like, I have set goals before. I've tried to address them. And it is just, it doesn't matter. Like, I can't get traction or I can't fix it the way that I would like to. So what does it even matter to try? So I have a poll. I also have a picture of our dog, June, who, you know, is my motivation every day to get up and get out and go on a walk. And she doesn't care if it's 20 degrees outside. She doesn't care if it's 40 degrees outside. She doesn't care if it's 90 degrees outside. Every day, multiple times a day, she wants to go out. She wants to go on a walk. She wants to chase her ball that we throw for her. So I have a picture of her. She's our chocolate lab. And so I've got some stuff up there. I'm going to be posting more to that probably on a weekly or maybe bi-weekly basis. I haven't quite figured out. And I'll for sure do a bonus episode every month. Um, It might not be as long as some of mine are. I might just get on and hit record and you get some ramblings of what I'm thinking, what's been coming up for me and the sessions that I've been in during the week and what I think is helpful to put out there. So I'm sure that that will continue to evolve what the bonus content is available on Patreon. So there's going to be that, and that is in place and ready to go. And then the second one is we have had a YouTube channel. The group practice that I own and run has, you know, had a YouTube channel since 20 2018 2019 somewhere in there and we have a couple videos that we put on that you know from different therapists that we've some of them are still with us some of them have moved on but we have some good content on there but again it is old I think it's still relevant and still good but it is old so I also have a goal to keep more current on the YouTube channel now I do the marketing company that I was working with back in 2019 who set it up for me and they're not my marketing company anymore. For some reason, they put themselves as the owner of the channel. And so I'm in the process of trying to get them to transfer that to me. I don't know why they would put it as themselves as the owner. So I don't fully have access to that yet. They're telling me give it till Wednesday of the new year with the holiday. And they think they'll be able to transfer ownership so that I'm the owner. And I can have control over that page. And um, the ideas and the goals that I have for our YouTube channel is from each podcast episode that I'm putting out, I'll put little clips like smaller ones from my understanding. And I'm still figuring out how YouTube works and how it works best. But from my understanding, you know, a lot of people like shorter content, maybe five minutes, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. I'm not sure I'm still diving into and trying to read and understand and figure all of that out. So I will be putting, maybe it's a part of the podcast that I put out in video format on our YouTube channel, but it also might be just topics that I know we're getting our search engines are saying, Hey, this is a, you know, topic that is, or this, you know, these are key phrases that are being searched that you guys are coming up under. So we might be doing something like that. If there's, you know, topics in the news or current events that I feel like is related to what's going on, you know, what the work that we do or mental health or something like that, you know, we'll do shorts on that. My plan also is to get more of my staff recording those and putting them out on YouTube. And so you'll also get to become familiar with some of the stuff that maybe you don't know or you haven't heard from or you're not aware of. So that's also the plan for the YouTube channel. So those will be in video format. Um, Patreon is audio format. And then I'll be doing some of my podcasts will still be free and available to anybody on the podcast apps that you use to listen to podcasts. Others will be, you know, behind a paywall. I'm trying to figure out, like some of the people that I follow, you know, you'll get maybe the first 15 minutes of a podcast episode, and then, you know, to listen to the rest, it's behind the paywall on Patreon. So I if I can figure out how to do that, I'll do that with some of them, not with all of them. So anyway, there are some things to be watching for, some things that are going to be changing. I think some things that are going to be added that'll be beneficial. And I'm kind of excited about these goals that I've set. I'm one of those that, you know, has some trepidation around goals. I like the idea of goals. I don't like the pressure of putting them all at the new year. I mean, sometimes I think it's a great way to start, you know, but sometimes for me, it's more naturally felt like September is a great time to focus on goals. You know, we've kind of wrapped up the summer. And I feel like the summer is a, you know, different season where we're not really pushing our hardest. We're taking some time off. We're more social, we're more mobile. We're traveling, we're enjoying things. We're having barbecues, we're visiting more. And so at the end of summer, you know, kids go back to school. I mean, mine are in college now or beyond, but they're head back to school. I feel like September kind of naturally feels like a great time to do some goals. But I also feel like, you know. I don't know that it matters when you set some goals. I think it's good to take an inventory, look at what's working, maybe what to add, what to evolve, what to um, subtract. I think that's good to do any time of the year, you know, so sometimes the pressure in January or the end of December feels, you know, overwhelming to me and a little trepidatious. But I am excited about it. I've been thinking about some things that I wanted to add. And now is a good time for me to do it. I feel the energy. I feel not motivated. I kind of feel like motivated is way oversold. I feel like, you know, I, I tell my kids a lot of times we have to do things, whether we are motivated to do it or not. And sometimes I feel like motivation gets uh, used as a pass or a an excuse. Like I'm just not motivated. I feel like. You know, we have to know how to motivate ourselves and to get things done, even if we don't feel motivated. But I I do feel some energy around this, and so I think it's a good time to do it. So there's that. I think I've covered all of those things. I hope you had a wonderful holiday, whatever you celebrate. I hope that you were able to finish off the year with some rest. I know the week between Christmas and New Year's kind of is this liminal space where we don't really know what day it is. I know I apparently was getting caught up on sleep. I'd wake up some mornings and I'd have to lay in bed for a few minutes with my eyes open and try to think like, what month is it? Like, I, like I woke up one time thinking it was like early summer. And I was like, oh yeah, we could get out and clean the garage. Like we didn't get a chance to clean the garage. I could deep clean of the garage last summer. We should do that. And then I'm like, oh yeah, it's cold outside, Jackie. It's December, almost January. Like, so that happened several mornings this um, past week when I would wake up and just kind of be like, I don't even know what month it is. So apparently I was getting some deep restful sleep that I needed, which is always nice. And then today is the nine year anniversary of my mom's passing. She passed away around, I think it was around three. I think she was declared dead or like 3.30 something. I have it written down somewhere. I just didn't look at that in the afternoon. And so we'll be getting together tonight as siblings. And we have a tradition, a baking competition. And we have quite a large trophy, a traveling trophy that the winner gets to keep at their house and have bragging rights to for the year. And so we'll be doing that. And then we spend some time in the evening. My youngest sibling, my brother, came up with a bunch of questions about my mom, you know, just memories we have of her, good, bad, and otherwise, things we want to reflect on that we each, I mean, we're, we're pretty big, you know, when you have six kids and all six kids are married with three or four kids, we're a pretty big group. And then, you know, like my older sister, her kids are both married. One of my kids is married. Another one, her boyfriend typically comes with us. So we get to be a pretty big group. So. We only pick one question. Everybody picks one question, and then we kind of share memories and thoughts, and it's it's good. I like, I like that tradition. So we'll do that later tonight. Shortly after I woke up this morning, my aunt, my mom's sister, had texted my older sister, and she sent it out to the family saying that uh, one of my aunts... So ironically, if you want to follow this, so the aunt that texted her ex-husband's wife of, oh, God, I, I would say probably they were married maybe like 25 years, a long time, passed away early in the morning, like 30 in the morning this morning. And so, you know, I texted my uncle. We're still, I, I would say there was a time period after their divorce where my aunt, I don't know like exactly what happened, but I was like, graduating high school when they started their divorce. So 18, 19 in that range. I think she had some false memories that came up. I would, I think they're false memories and they weren't, she wasn't just saying it happened to her. She was saying it happened to several people in the family, which wasn't like the other people were like, no, that's not me. And so she kind of cut off contact with the family for several years, uh, maybe even the decade after the divorce, Um, whereas her husband would still have contact. He still had, he mostly had custody of their five kids. And so, you know, to have contact with our cousins, it went through him. He got remarried. His new wife was such a sweetheart, so good to the kids, but also was a good, I mean, just her personality was such that she was such a good bridge between my aunt and her ex that I think a lot of conflict was avoided because of Marsha. And so I was sad to learn that she passed away yesterday. It kind of a sounds like a little bit of a horrific death in terms of end of life stuff that happens and is a little prolonged, just made me sad. And so I've been thinking about them today with their loss. It also, you know, because it's the same day, my mom passed away. It brings a lot of memories about, I mean, we woke up this morning nine years ago, not knowing that this day was going to be significant. They knew, you know, at 1.30 in the morning, that this day was significant. But just, you know, the similar weather kind of had an inversion today. We had one back then going to the mortuary, doing all that stuff that you have to do this time of year, just kind of, you know, I was maybe feeling that or remembering that more than usual. I mean, I always, on this day. I have pretty you know vivid memories it was me and my youngest brother who were there when the doctors called time of death for our mother um, and then we had to between the two of us we had to contact our other siblings who were out busy doing stuff you know skiing just doing stuff post holidays and so the two of us had to get a hold of all of our siblings and relay the bad news and know then we had to start contacting other people and we had to contact my mom's dad who was still alive and that was heartbreaking so just you know I, i i think i get a little somber like i was i was telling a client last week like december 1st i'm good i'm like yeah i got this i i like december i like the holidays and the closer christmas comes the more i'm like i get somber. This year was hard, I would say. You know, growing up as a kid, I was excited about December, you know, but like it is for many families and many parents, it was very stressful financially for my family. And so, you know, my parents' worst argument of the year was always like pretty close to Christmas. The tension, like while there was excitement for me as a kid, the tension was also like very... Like, you could just feel it. And so I, I kind of feel that the closer it gets to Christmas. I, I My body just feels that. It remembers that. And, you know, sometimes, some years it's harder than others. This year was, it was hard. I remember like December 15th, just thinking, I'm looking forward to December 27th. That's what I'm looking forward to. So anyway, just one of those years, you know, and sometimes that happens. You know, I was thinking yesterday, thinking about my aunt who passed away. On some levels, December 30th, I think is a good day to pass away. You know, like it finishes off the year. It's not right on the holiday. It's not right on New Year's Eve. So you can get some things done. We learned this, like you can get some planning in terms of funeral and stuff like that done before things close down for the New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. You know, tax wise, it's nice and neat. i was thinking, I don't know, I was thinking about that. Like, yeah, in some ways it's a nice day to die. In other ways, like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I would have picked this date, but for my mom to pass away. But it is what it is. So anyway, let's get into all that to say, I hope you had a good holiday. And if you didn't, I felt you this year. I was with you this year. And I hope that, you know, the new year for you is what you're hoping. And you can go bravely into the new year. That's why I feel like I'm stepping bravely into this new year. And I hope you can too. Okay, today's episode, I wanted to talk about so two things. Like one of our biggest phrases that get searched where we pop up in, you know, our SEO, and it has been this way for probably close to two years, I would say, is you know, the phrase how to stop watching porn. So today's episode, I'm kind of gonna get into what is porn, kind of how do we look at this as CSATs, how do we look at this as professionals in the field. What is, you know, the ins and outs? Like, I think Rachel and I have mentioned before, there's no diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual, for porn addiction or sex addiction. Uh, We've talked about that before. And so I'm going to talk a little bit about that as well. And then Rachel and I, when we record next week, we'll be talking about, more specifically, about how to stop watching porn, right? I'll get into some of that today, but we'll have more of a conversation about what that looks like. So I don't think, I mean, I've probably put out some podcast episodes on this topic, but I don't think I've done it in this way, or maybe with this much information or what the information that I've assembled in my head for this podcast episode. So let's start on talking about like, what, what is porn? I mean, we've probably all heard the saying that the Supreme Court in, I don't remember what year, the nineties, early 2000s said, you know, that they couldn't really define what pornography is, but when you see it, you'll know it. So let's get a little bit better definition. We're in end of 2023 into 2024. So what is porn? Well, we know that it can be imagery, it can be video, it can be written text, it can be still images, it can be movies or magazines that are used for the purpose of sexual arousal and escape. So whether it's on a porn site, You know, some of them are on porn sites. Others are like on social media sites like Instagram or TikTok. You know, sometimes I'll have clients who are like, I don't go to any porn sites. And I'm like, okay, that's great to know, but that doesn't mean that you don't watch porn, right? Like, where are you watching your porn? So it can also be on social media sites. What we know about addiction, so like that's just talking about what porn is, right? Now, when we start talking about addiction, well, addiction is a way or a means or a source of distraction. Oftentimes we talk about how addiction is an illness of escape, whether it's a substance or it's a behavior, it's being used for emotional escape. It's a coping mechanism. I often say, you know, it's a maladaptive coping mechanism. It might not start out being maladaptive, but with time, with addiction, it eventually becomes maladaptive, meaning it's not really working in productive or positive ways for the person. Now, we do know addiction will get us out of our head. Um, It does give us relief. But eventually, it also starts causing problems. So, you know, we kind of say it works until it stops working. So let's take tackle this question. Does everyone who views porn eventually become addicted? Well, no. Just like with alcohol, not everyone who enjoys a drink or even drinks too much from time to time wouldn't necessarily qualify as an alcoholic. So in the DSM, you know, there's not the term alcoholic, the The terminology is alcohol dependence. So when we look at the numbers for alcohol dependence, there are around 11% of users that cannot drink without it causing serious issues in their life. And what we know is the same is true with porn. Some people may watch porn and enjoy porn and viewing porn does not become an addiction. But for others, it does. Whether it's on a porn site or Instagram, TikTok, whatever, if you're using it for the purpose of arousal and escape, it can eventually become problematic. So assuming that the majority of porn users, you know, the numbers would say majority of porn users do not get carried away in the search for porn's rewards or incentives, you know, like sexual excitement, sexual gratification, what determines exactly when they use it? So for the users of porn who do not develop addiction, what determines exactly when they use it? So most people who use porn use it only every so often. Sometimes people seek out porn simply because it feels good to be in a state of sexual excitement. Sometimes they use it to be entertained or to be distracted from work or other activities. More often than perhaps assumed, people don't use it because it feels good, but because it makes them feel good better, which is a subtle distinction. Do you hear that subtle distinction? It's not necessarily making a person feel good, but it's making them feel better than they were, which isn't necessarily good. At the Kinsey Institute, they are currently exploring the effects of negative mood like stress, anxiety, depression, on sexual desire, and arousal. And they say, quote, while many people are likely to lose their sexual interest, as well as their ability to become sexually aroused when they feel bad, others are still able to function sexually and may use sex to regulate their mood, to feel better, even if it is only for a brief period of time. They continue, We believe that this paradoxical increase in sexual interest and activity in some people when they feel bad may not only be important to explaining why or when people use porn, it may also increase our understanding of the causes of compulsive Or addictive patterns of sexuality. They continue, there is much that can be said about porn and much more that could be studied. More research has been done on the possible negative consequences of porn than on what determines its use in the first place. And yet it is this type of research that eventually may elucidate why some people are attracted to porn while others are not, and why some people seem to lose control over their desires for it. Empirical research cannot provide answers to the question of whether porn, imagined or on tape, in a book or on the internet, is in itself bad or wrong. But history teaches us not only that it is not likely to vanish, but also that we can learn more about ourselves from giving porn and its users a closer look. So, the Kinsey Institute found that 9% of people who view porn have unsuccessfully tried to stop. Now, this survey Was taken in 2002. And since then, as you can imagine, it's become much easier to access porn via the internet and streaming services. And because of this, the types of porn available are, you know, evolving, changing, growing. So this easy access makes it more difficult to stop if watching porn has become a problem. So as we start to get into some of these concepts, I think it's important to start with let's kind of back out or go to a higher level and start by defining some of the terms that I'm going to be using. So first, I want to start with the definition of addiction by ASAM or the American Society of Addiction Medicine. So this is just the definition of addiction, not a particular addiction like alcohol, porn, sex. It's just a definition, a general definition of addiction. So ASAM defines addiction as a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. Or put another way, also written by ASAM, addiction is a treatable chronic medical disease involving complex interactions among brain circuits genetics, the environment, and an individual's life experience. People with addiction use substances or engage in behaviors that become compulsive and often continue despite harmful consequences. So that's the definition ASAM puts out of addiction in general, right? So sometimes when I'm shortening that up or just putting it in lay language with clients, I'll talk about how addiction is a treatable, but also chronic medical disease that involves the brain, it involves our genetics, it involves the environment and our life experiences, and that people with addiction engage in behaviors that become compulsive and continue despite harmful consequences. Sex addiction, let's move into, now we're getting a little bit more specific, sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior disorder is a dysfunctional preoccupation with sex that continues for a period of at least six months, despite negative consequences and attempts to either quit or curtail the problem-causing behaviors. Now, sometimes I have clients who come in and they've, they've never tried to quit, right? So that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not an addict, because we can have them try to quit and see how that works. But for a lot of people, a lot of people with addiction have tried at least one or more times to quit. So stated more simply, sex addiction is an ongoing out-of-control pattern of sexual fantasies and behaviors that cause problems in a person's life. So sex addiction right now is diagnosed based on three primary criteria. And yes, this is not in the DSM. I'm not arguing with people who will say, that's not in the DSM. That doesn't mean it can't be a thing. There's been a lot of things that have been in the DSM and have been removed, despite, I think, like, I think it being a valid thing. There's been things in the DSM that definitely needed to be removed. There's been things that have been put in the DSM that it's like, oh, why hasn't this been here all along? Well, because our thinking and understanding has evolved and changed. So yes, it's not in the DSM. I'm not arguing that. But let's look at like what sex addiction is the diagnostic criteria. We have three primary criteria that pretty much are agreed upon. Although I will say the criteria is probably more than three, but we have three that pretty much most people agree on it. So the first one, preoccupation to the point of obsession, sex addicts can spend hours, sometimes even days fantasizing about planning for pursuing and eventually engaging in sexual acts with either themselves or another person. They often lose time when they're kind of floating around in their sexual obsession. So preoccupation is the first diagnostic criteria. Second, there's a loss of control. So most sex addicts try, usually repeatedly, to either quit or cut back on their sexual behaviors. Sometimes they even exceed for a short time period, but before they know it, they're back where they started and they're starting to lose themselves in that preoccupation or that sexual obsession. Sometimes even I have clients who will, you know, stop and maybe a part of them wants to stop. But there's also a part of them that knows if they go a certain amount of time, whatever that is, a month, two months, three months, and then they re-engage, the way it impacts them is going to be even better. So we have preoccupation, we have loss of control. And then the third criteria is negative consequences. So sex addicts typically experience the same basic consequences as other addicts. it problems at work or in school, relationship problems, financial issues declining physical and or emotional health, loss of interest in previously enjoyable activities, isolation, possibly arrest or legal charges. So those negative consequences, you know, are similar to anybody with any addiction. Um, they can have that same list of possible negative consequences. The details of it, maybe I usually say, or the specifics are more geared towards, you know, sex addict versus an alcoholic. There are slight differences, but you know, it would maybe fall under the same umbrella of declining physical or emotional health or a loss of interest. Now, if someone identifies with these three criteria, it's quite possible, like I said, that the person is sexually addicted. And if so, we also know that it's likely that they're compulsively engaging in one or more of the following behaviors. So hour after hour of porn or webcam use with or without masturbation losing themselves in hookup apps and similar technologies, dating sites, video chat, sexting, constantly hunting for sex, whether that's cruising in the car for sex partners, surfing online for sex partners, hanging out in steam rooms at gym. Again, that kind of depends on the different person where they're likely to go cruising or hunting for sex, an ongoing pattern of intense and highly sexualized affairs or brief serial relationships, Consistently having casual and or anonymous sex with people they meet online or in person. Consistently visiting strip clubs, adult bookstores, theaters, and other sex-driven environments. Paying for or being paid for sex. Sensual massage, eroticized domination. That type of stuff. A pattern of unsafe sex. Unprotected sex, sex with strangers, sex in public, etc. And then consistently seeking sex without regard to consequences. So even though their, their relationships, their primary relationships have been damaged, they consistently see sex without the thought of how that's going to impact my relationship. Or uh, I'm having some financial issues, but I go ahead and spend this money seeking sex without necessarily thinking about how that's going to impact my financial situation. So the listing of typical sex addict behaviors we know is incomplete, and that at least one or two of the activities listed above that I just went through are nearly always among the behaviors that any sex addict struggles with. Now let's talk about what does porn addiction look like. So like we've talked about, simply viewing or enjoying porn doesn't make a person addicted to it, nor does that necessarily require treatment or fixing. Remember, addictions are about a lack of control and that lack of control causes significant problems. So porn addiction occurs when an individual loses control over whether he or she is viewing pornography, the amount of time they spend with pornography, and the types of pornography that they use. We know that since people can be reluctant to talk about it, it can be difficult to know how many people are actually viewing porn. Research shows that certain behavioral addictions such as internet addiction involve neural processes similar to substance addiction, and the internet pornography addiction is comparable to that. So, you know, there's kind of a difference. I know there's some critics in the field that talk about how addiction has to be something we ingest like a substance that we that's external to us that we ingest and that's the only thing that can qualify as an addiction. Well, we know that's not true. So, we have like the substance addictions, yes. We also have behavioral addictions. So this involves a behavior and kind of this internal reward circuitry that is, you know, like, makes us feel better, allows us to escape, allows us to numb, allows us to feel a a state of arousal instead of the pain that we might be experiencing. So, you know, it's not just that sex or pornography addiction is the only behavioral addiction we're talking about. We're talking about video gaming. We're talking about internet addiction. It can be shopping addiction. It can be any of the behaviors that lead to reward that can get hijacked and become maladaptive, that can get out of control, that can become, we, we get preoccupied in seeking them out and they start to cause problems in our lives. So we know that an internet pornography addiction is comparable to substance addiction in terms of like what's happening in the brain. In a 2013 article entitled "A New Generation of Sexual Addiction" in the Sexual Addiction and Compulsivity Journal of Treatment and Prevention, by authors Jennifer Reimersma, I like I have to apologize to her because I've only ever read the name, and I'm sure that I'm like butchering her last name there. And Michael Sitzma, so s- apologies for the name. Jennifer and Michael, in this article, they stated, quote, sexual addiction has been an increasingly observed and researched phenomena within the past 30 years. Now, we're starting to differentiate between what we call classic. So let me talk about that. Classic sexual addiction emerges from a history of abuse, insecure attachment patterns, disordered impulse control, and often presents with cross addictions and comorbid mood disorders. So history of abuse, not necessarily sexual abuse. It can be, but it can also be physical. It can also be neglect, insecure attachment patterns, meaning this person has had some attachment disruptions. There's some disordered impulse control. And then they also can have cross addictions. Maybe, you know, maybe there is some substance addiction as well as sex addiction. Maybe there's work addiction substance addiction, sex addiction. So we can we can get multiple addictions happening at the same time, or concurrently. And then we usually have comorbid or co occurring mood disorders, whether that's anxiety, PTSD, OCD, depression, that type of stuff. So they also talk about, I'm going to quote them here, they say, we also see what is referred to as contemporary form of rapid onset sexual addiction. That has emerged with the explosive growth of internet technology and easy access to online pornography. This more contemporary or modern form of porn or sex addiction is the product of a toxic trilogy chronicity, content, and culture. So, repeated and chronic, meaning it happens multiple times over time, or it's consistent or chronic over time, and they're being exposed to sexually graphic content. That is, reinforced by a highly sexualized culture, kind of creates this perfect storm in which addictive sexual behaviors can arise. They may not have the trauma history, they may not have the attachment disruptions. Let's see, they continue, rapid onset features are a hallmark of contemporary sex addiction due to the powerful interaction of the three Cs. So that was the chronicity content and culture. Because exposure is the pivotal variable Contemporary demographics are highly diverse. They do not conform to the markers of previous addiction models, and they may not well be served by traditional formulaic interventions. Contemporary sexual addiction is unique in that where access to technology is present, all ages, cultures, genders, races, socioeconomic levels, and education levels appear to be equally affected. Classic precursors to sexual addiction such as impaired attachment, abuse, or mood disorders, are no longer implicated as causal, though they may serve as moderators for the degree of severity of the developing addiction. So not necessarily that there is these attachment disruptions, that there's the trauma, that there's abuse, that there's mood disorders. Although if those are there, that can indicate or put it at a higher severity but it can develop also without those other precursors. Classic addicts are particularly vulnerable to cyber exacerbation of existing addictive patterns since the disembodied and non-relational qualities of internet sex are uniquely alluring to individuals with attachment disorder. Now, I personally think this is an area where we will see more written, more research, more developed as we continue to look at these differences between the classic sex addiction model and the more contemporary or modern sex addiction type. So I think that's an interesting thing to look at and just kind of put out there that we know that there's, you know, as we're seeing an entire generation, or we're seeing the length of time that we have access to high speed internet and stuff like that, that we're seeing some differences emerge when it comes to pornography and sex addiction. So going back, porn addicts typically spend at least 11 or 12 hours per week searching for and looking at pornography. Now, if you spend eight or nine, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not an addict. Again, remember, we're going at preoccupation, loss of control, negative consequences. Those things can be happening with five hours, right? But we're just looking at like to your typical porn addict. This is what they average. Most often, digital imagery is accessed via their computer, their laptop, their tablet, their smartphone, or some other internet enabled device. And This 11 or 12 hours per week number is the low end of the spectrum. Usually they're exceeding 11 or 12 hours a week. Many porn addicts devote double or even triple the amount of time to their addiction. In a July 2011 Harvard Mental Health newsletter, it underscores how addiction co-ops the brain, noting that the speed and reliability of dopaminergic release in cybersex exposure overload the reward circuitry of the brain's reward center. Overproduction of dopamine requires heightened risk and intrigue to sustain pleasure levels. So we're talking, there's a tolerance there and I need more graphic, more exciting, more or different um, in order to get the same level of whatever that I'm, I'm seeking. Excitement, pleasure, numbness. Subsequently, increasing amounts of time and energy are invested in cybersex-seeking behavior in search of this elusive high, which quickly leads to chronic and often addictive behavior. The newsletter continues, of particular concern is how chronic exposure to graphic images profoundly alters the arousal template of affected individuals. Dr. Patrick Carnes articulates a stepwise progression involved in the addictive neuronal adaptation to cybersex in which chronic exposure to cybersex leads to prolonged brain stimulation and dopamine production. Machine enhanced sexual arousal creates a new sexual set point and alteration of synaptic connections with the evolution of new arousal neuronal networks that fundamentally alter the arousal template. Preoccupation and heightened obsession incorporate distorted normality and the ability to have or enjoy normal sex is diminished as is the capacity to inhibit riskier sexual behaviors. Computer behavior becomes highly ritualized and detached from real-life sexual partners, leads to relational disturbance, disruption of in life functions, and escalated high-risk or novelty-seeking behavior. So again, sometimes, you know, we get clients in who, when they're talking about their porn use, right, or they're in a group and we'll, you know, we just put, maybe in our recovery groups, we'll put people working on sexual sobriety, sexual recovery, that type of stuff. We don't necessarily differentiate between what would be a sex addict, classic or contemporary or a porn addict. And so sometimes we get clients who will say, well, I haven't done anything offline, right? Like they're thinking of sex addicts who engage in things offline. And and yes, that's true, typically. But that doesn't mean that porn addiction is a less than or a step back from sex addiction. Now, sometimes for them that has kept them in their mind. It's kind of a denial mechanism where they feel like there's a line that they haven't crossed. They haven't involved in another person in real life, you know, like things like that, where I typically will just say, well, porn addiction is its own addiction. It's not necessarily across-the-board comparable. Like, we can't say that porn addiction is a less evolved form of sex addiction. It just doesn't work that way. And I feel like that paragraph addresses that. Like, porn addiction in and of itself is problematic. Not comparing it to sex addicts, right? That's a different addiction and should be a standalone looked at. And, you know, yes, some sex addicts also engage in pornography behavior. But pornography addiction itself can be very disruptive to life. It can alter their sexual arousal template. Then he talks about machine created, you know, again, let's think about like computer created, computer enhanced. When I'm talking with clients, there's a lot of different angles we can look at addiction. Can addiction be looked at through a brain disorder? Yes. Can addiction be looked at through the lens of trauma? Absolutely. Can addiction be looked at as an attachment disorder? Yes. Can we look at it as an interrupted grief process for sure can addiction be looked at through the dysfunctional family lens yes can it be looked at in terms of just exposure to highly sexualized graphic material starting at young ages absolutely and all of this is going to take time to work through now let's further look at porn addicts they often couple their porn use with compulsive masturbation or other compulsive sexual behaviors, such as webcam sex or sexting, anonymous sex, casual sex, affairs, prostitution, exhibitionism, voyeurism. So it can be paired with other things that maybe we would think of as more like classic sex addiction, acting out behaviors. But porn addiction can also be a standalone form of sex addiction. And some people don't pair it with these other things. So what are some common signs that casual porn has escalated to the level of addiction. Let's go through that list. So, continued porn use despite consequences or promises made to the self or others to stop, escalating amounts of time spent on porn use, hours even days lost to searching for, viewing, and organizing pornography, masturbation to the point of abrasions or injury, viewing progressively more rousing, intense, or bizarre sexual content, lying about, keeping secrets about, and covering up the nature and extent of porn use, anger or irritability if asked to stop using porn, reduced or even non-existent interest in real-world sex and intimacy, porn-induced erectile dysfunction, deeply rooted feelings of loneliness, longing, or detachment, drug and alcohol abuse in combination with porn use, drug or alcohol addiction, relapse related to porn use or feelings about porn use, increased objectification of strangers, viewing them as body parts rather than as people, escalation from non-interactive imagery to interactive sexual encounters. Now, sadly, oftentimes porn addicts are often reluctant to seek help because they may not view their solo sexual behaviors as an underlying source of their unhappiness, or because they're too ashamed of these behaviors to even talk about them, even with a therapist. And when they do seek help, Sometimes they tend to seek help with their addictions-related symptoms, so they might come in not talking about their porn use, but they're talking about feelings of depression, feelings of loneliness, relationship troubles, and maybe the therapist doesn't even realize or recognize that we need to assess what else is going on that might be contributing to these symptoms. Now, I will say, I don't know, generally speaking, how it generalizes out to other therapists in other states. But I will say where I'm located here in Utah, I don't think most therapists have been taught to assess for sexual behavior or problematic sexual behavior. I don't know that they're comfortable talking about their clients' sexual behaviors. Often, you know, like, and it's fascinating to me because sometimes we'll get calls, we'll get referrals from people who are working in substance addiction, and I mean, we're always happy for referrals, but, you know, they might be saying like, Hey, I have this client. I've been working with them for two or three years on their substance addiction. And in session last week, they disclosed that they use porn. And maybe like they've stopped their substance addiction. And now they're talking about that. I've continued my porn use. And the therapist is kind of like, I don't know what to do. So can you guys take them? and? we'll keep working the substance addiction angle, but can you guys work this? Like, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what to talk about. It's uncomfortable for me. And so, of of course, we're happy to, you know, take that piece. And I feel like we do a really good job working with that piece. But also to me, I'm like, okay, this is just addiction. If you're working with addiction, but you know, with some therapists, they don't, they work substance addiction. They don't know how to treat the behavioral addictions, or they're not comfortable particularly with the sexual piece. So sometimes that's a thing. And so they might talk about the symptoms and the therapist never knows to assess for what might be contributing related to their sexual behavior or their online sexual use. Oftentimes, you know, clients can attend therapy for extended periods. Like I was saying, we got a referral not that long ago, and the therapist had been working with him for two or three years. So they can be attending therapy for extended periods of time and never even discuss or never be asked about their pornography use. And so as a result, their core problem can stay underground and untreated for years or even decades. And I think that can reinforce to them that like, yes, my solo pornography use online is not a problem, but I'm just having this separate issue around depression or anxiety, my loneliness, my Detachment from self, my detachment from life, all of those things are happening, but they aren't connected to my porn use because wouldn't the therapist say that? Well, yeah, I would hope so. But unfortunately, in too many cases, the answer is no. The therapist doesn't know to connect that or to even assess for that. Now, some people will use the label sex addiction, and this is unfortunate too, to define any type of sexual behavior that doesn't meet their personal, religious, or moral standards. So I think this is where it can get, you know, sticky. And sometimes I'm okay with therapists. If they're not comfortable assessing for the sexual piece, then they probably should not be. Because, you know, they can do more harm than good here. Other times, individuals use sex addiction as an excuse for sexual misconduct, right? Like, And I know with partners, sometimes this is the fear that if they're diagnosed as having sexual addiction then doesn't that make them not responsible for their addiction? Well, no, that's not typically the approach that we would take. But we do have to acknowledge that there is this maladaptive coping that is somewhat legitimate, right, and has to be treated. That's not an excuse. We can't just be like, oh, well, they're an addict, so what do you expect? No, that's not what we do. Maybe individuals get caught in inappropriate, problematic, maybe even illegal sexual behavior, and they can blame their actions on an addiction, you know, hoping to avoid or at least minimize the judgment and the punishment that they got. So, you know, I think that can be problematic. I think, you know, when Harvey Weinstein was arrested and he went to treatment, I think he was saying, you know, like, oh, this is a long-time sexual addiction. And, you know, I wasn't involved in his treatment. And so maybe there is a piece of this that is sexual addiction, but he was also a perpetrator, right? And so I think this is where we have to understand that, you know, most your average sex addict engages in consensual behavior with other consenting adults. If they're engaging in in offline sexual behavior, you know, they're not necessarily being predatory or, yeah, they're not being predatory in their behavior. And that was certainly a characteristic of Harvey Weinstein's behavior is that he was being predatory and would use it against people in their career advancement. So I think that's a that's a different issue. You know, maybe there's sex addiction, but his predatory behavior does not really account for sex addiction. We wouldn't see that. But let's talk about some things, you know, that can be helpful to understand what sex addiction is not. So I think, first of all, like I see this sometimes comedians might joke about this, or I just see people, you know, kind of joking about this. Like, I wish I was a sex addict, right? That like sex addiction is fun. Well, let's just clarify. Sex addiction is not fun. Sex addiction leads to shame, depression, anxiety. It leads to a wide variety of negative consequences, just like any other type of addiction. Sex addiction is not about having a good time. More than, you know, let's say meth addiction is all about having a good time. By the time people are in their addiction, this is not about a good time, right? This is about just getting through. Sex addiction also is not an excuse for bad behavior. Sex addicts are not absolved of responsibility for the problems that their choices have led to. We still look at them as having some choice, even though there is an addiction present, they do have choice. And, you know, part of recovering from any addiction, including sex and pornography addiction, is admitting what you've done and accepting the consequences and making amends. Sex addiction is not related to sexual orientation. Neither homosexual nor bisexual arousal patterns are factors in the diagnosis of sexual addiction. We're not looking at orientation, In terms of a diagnosing sex addiction, being gay, lesbian, or bisexual does not make anybody a sex addict any more than being straight will make you a sex addict. Like the orientation is not where we start looking at predictive sex addiction behaviors. One of my CSAC colleagues, Rob Weiss, will say sexual addiction is not in any way defined by who or what it is that turns you on, which I think we have to put that out there. Sex addiction is not related to fetishes or paraphilias. So non-traditional sexual turn-ons, whether we're talking kinks, fetishes, paraphilias, that's unrelated to sexual addiction. That's part of a person's arousal template, but we can't just say that their arousal template is addictive in nature. So, you know, as my colleague states, and I'll restate that again, sexual addiction is not in any way defined by who or what it is that turns you on. Sex addiction is not just a guy think It's not just men being men, boys being boys. Sometimes the common perception is that only men are sex addicts. And this is just not true. And I think does some harm. I think female sex and love addicts, a couple of problems. A, if male sex addicts often are not assessed for their compulsive sexual behavior and the symptoms that it is creating or the negative consequences it is causing, females are much less likely to be looked at through that lens by most therapists right that's not likely to be assessed for so i think that they're more likely to be unassessed for them that's what i'm trying to say and then second i think for a lot of female sex addicts they confuse perpetrators for sex addicts and so if they've been a victim of sexual abuse they're less likely to see their behavior as sex addiction because you know in their mind sex addicts are perpetrators, and they were abused by a perpetrator. And so I can't be that. I'm not doing that. So I think there's some more education, definitely. I I think, you know, since I've been a CSAT, the resources for female sex addicts are expanding. We still need more resources for female sex addicts um, that's specific to them. And where that's going to come from is we definitely need more research around first female sexuality. Right? Not looked at in terms of their relationship to male sexuality, but just a study of female sexuality. And then looking at that in terms of when it becomes compulsive and problematic. Another thing that sex addiction is not, it is not the partner's fault. Sometimes I've had my share of sex addicts who blame their significant other for their addiction, saying like, you know, my partner has gained a lot of weight. If I had more sex with my partner, this wouldn't be happening. And I just think we have to call this out. This is a lie. They might believe it. The sex addict might absolutely believe it. The partner might believe it. But it's a lie. And so I I think we, you know, need to recognize that for what it is. Like, I've worked with a lot of partners who gain weight as part of the sex addiction. They become somewhat disembodied by the gaslighting and the crazy making. Or they're turning to food as a way of comfort There's a lot of things that can be happening there, but if it's not causing the addiction, that's a result of the addiction. Also, like the partner not feeling sexual. Some partners do still feel sexual, even knowing that their partner has a sex addiction. But for others, that shuts it down. They don't feel safe. And so that alters how much they feel like engaging in sexual behavior with their partner. Again, that's coming from the addiction, not causing the addiction. And then again, I've said this a couple of times, but let's just be clear, sex addiction is not the same thing as sexual offending. It's possible. It's possible to be both a sex addict and a sexual offender, but addiction and offending are not the same thing. And the majority of sex addicts do not become sex offenders. It's not like it's a, on a continuum. And eventually, the longer you stay in sex addiction, the more you'll likely end up in sex offending. It's not necessarily the case. And then also, you know, we get this criticism in the field sometimes that sex addicts or CSATs are just sex negative. And I would say that sex addiction therapy is not sex negative. Some people worry that sex addiction therapists are, you know, trying to be the new sex police or we're imposing moral and cultural or religious values on sexuality. Now, I will say Rachel and I did a podcast, was it last month or two months ago, talking about some bad therapists here in Utah who, you know, quote unquote, were, putting their shingle out as sex addiction therapists. None of them were CSATs, by the way. Not that CSATs can't have harmful practices. I've certainly encountered that with clients that I have worked with and their former CSAT-trained therapist was doing some things that, you know, they lost their license over. So, some therapists put that out and they are imposing their moral, cultural, or religious values on sexuality and kind of narrowing this definition of sexual health But that shouldn't be the case. Like, that's a bad therapist. That's not how CSATs are trained. Certified sex addiction therapists should fully understand that sex addiction has nothing whatsoever to do with, like I said, what turns a person on and should treat their clients accordingly. Now, benchmarks typically used by certified sex addiction therapists when identifying sexual addiction include these things. Sexual preoccupation to the point of obsession, Loss of control over sexual urges. So this is typically evidenced by failed attempts to quit or to cut back. Negative life consequences related to compulsive sexual behaviors, such as ruined relationships, trouble at work or school, loss of interest in non-sexual activities, financial problems, maybe a loss of their standing in the community or their church, shame, depression, anxiety there can be the list can go on so let's talk about how like yes it's true the dsm-5 does not acknowledge sexual addiction that's true and it really just makes it more difficult for therapists to identify and treat compulsive sexual behaviors and for clients to seek insurance funded treatment like it's hard because it's not in the dsm it's harder for insurance to reimburse if we're treating sexual behaviors so Having said that, and Rachel and I talked about this in a uh, podcast episode when we were talking about bad therapists or bad therapists treating sex addiction, compulsive and sexual behavior disorder is included in the ICD-11, which is the ICD is the international equivalent of the DSM. I think currently the United States is using the ICD-10 version, but other countries I know, I'm pretty sure European countries, other countries, are using the ICD-11 version, and it does have compulsive sexual behavior disorder in the ICD-11. So what does the ICD-11 diagnosis say? It says, Compulsive sexual behavior disorder is characterized by a persistent pattern of failure to control intense, repetitive sexual impulses or urges resulting in repetitive sexual behavior. Symptoms may include repetitive and sexual activities becoming a central focus of the person's life to the point of neglecting health and personal care or other interests, activities, and responsibilities, numerous unsuccessful efforts to significantly reduce repetitive sexual behavior, and continued repetitive sexual behavior despite adverse consequences or deriving little or no satisfaction from it. The pattern of failure to control intense sexual impulses or urges, and resulting repetitive sexual behavior is manifested over an extended period of time, i.e. six months or more, and causes marked distress or significant impairment in personal, family, social, educational, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. Distress that is entirely related to moral judgments and disapproval about sexual impulses, urges, or behavior is not sufficient to meet this requirement. So I feel like we kind of covered what we've talked about so far. That diagnosis covers that. And I think the DSM will likely implement a similar diagnosis within a few years. But right now, we do not have an official sex addiction diagnosis in the USA. Again, it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So because sex and porn addiction is a complex issue, There is not a quick fix that's going to get you into long-term sobriety, let alone long-term recovery. So what does treatment for sex or porn addiction look like? So initially in treatment, just like in any intake with any mental health therapist, there's going to be a comprehensive biopsychosocial assessment. That's crucial. This is going to include a history from the client about their emotional and physical states of functioning, for CSATs, it's going to include a history of their sexual and relational history. It's going to be gathering a history that encompasses their family relationships, their family system, their social life, their work and financial aspects, along with other psychological concerns or co-occurring addictions or co-morbid issues that are present. This would also include asking questions about the nature of their addiction, the history of addiction in their family, as well as messages that they've received either about addiction or about sex and sexual behaviors. Now, I will stress here that diagnosing someone with sexual addiction should not be done quickly, and we should not be making assumptions. As a CSAT supervisor, I often tell CSAT candidates who are required to complete 30 hours of supervision with an approved supervisor as part of their certification process, that I think it is as important to recognize and educate when we are not looking at addiction as it is to be able to accurately identify when addiction is present. So sometimes we get clients who come in, they're self-identified as a sex addict, or maybe their partner or their pastor or a friend has said, like, yeah, I think you have a sex addiction. And as CSATs, we should not be taking whoever's word for this coming in the door, right? I think a lot of terms, mental health diagnosis terms, get thrown about in the lay public, and we can't accept the lay public's diagnosis as a legitimate thing, right? I think it gets more complex than that, and, and any licensed mental health professional should know that. So I think, you know, sometimes they come in and addiction isn't really present. Maybe there is a problem going on, but it's not meeting the threshold of addiction. And I think we need to be able to pivot and be able to talk about why this is not addictive, but why it is problematic, and be able to treat that or to refer out if that's not something you work on or have space for in your caseload. Again, I think if we're accepting anybody who walks in the door identifying as a sex addict as having a sex addiction, then we're making assumptions. And we are not taking our time with this diagnosis. And I think that's a disservice to clients. Treatment for sex addiction is going to employ similar foundational strategies and techniques that prove effective in addressing alcoholism, drug addiction, other types of addictions, and eating disorders. So early in therapy sessions, the focus is on managing problematic behavior, education about what addiction is, the issues that underlie addiction, and a focus on ensuring safety and starting to work towards stabilization. So, you know, I'm working with stabilization in terms of their acting out. Yes, but also stabilization, I'm trying to help them get some emotional regulation or just some emotional awareness. Also, early on in treatment, the therapist is confronting denial. They're addressing any crisis that brought the client into therapy. The therapist should also be examining what happens with each particular client when they relapse, and starting to work on a relapse prevention plan. And all of this needs to happen in a safe, non-judgmental way. As I've stated previously, a lot of sex addicts exhibit behavior that's rooted in trauma, although dedicated trauma therapy is usually postponed until the client achieves a degree of sexual sobriety, or as a degree of emotional resilience, they have some social support, You know, we tend to acknowledge with clients up front when there is trauma or it sounds like trauma underlies the origin of the addiction. And we are going to be addressing that later on in treatment. That's going to be important for you to maintain lasting recovery. But that's not something we typically start up front because it'll just, I find it just exacerbates addiction. Maybe they switch addictions or add in, you know, another addiction that maybe is co-occurring. Sex addiction treatment typically integrates both individual and group therapy, initially using a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, so it's a CBT approach up front. This therapy is usually complemented by social learning, psychoeducation, addiction-focused support groups like 12-step programs, or other addiction groups like support groups like refuge recovery, smart recovery, etc., as well as alternative methods like psychodrama, art, movement therapy, exercise meditation, animal therapies, like equine therapy with horses. Now, sometimes we get people up front who are wanting to use uh, like psychedelic medicine as part of their recovery. And that is never something we're going to recommend up front. Like that might be a part of their recovery, but that's going to be in the four to five year range, or I would say maybe three years down the road, they'll be stable enough where they can do that. If they're asking for that up front, probably need some more psychoeducation, probably help them understand what the recovery process looks like. Now, that doesn't mean that in some cases, clients need to explore the possibility of using anti-anxiety or antidepressant medications, because, you know, these can help alleviate not only anxiety and depression, but sometimes they can, if the sexual urges are really connected to that anxiety and depression, and we're alleviating some of those initial symptoms of anxiety or depressive urges, then it can also lessen the cravings that are associated with sexual acting out. So we might look at some uh, psychotropic meds like anti-anxiety or, you know, depressant medications, but we're not necessarily looking at the psychedelic um, assisted therapies. So in the context of treating sex addiction, individual therapy alone is often insufficient. Again, if we're talking about addiction as a relational disruption or attachment disruption, that's what I was thinking of. Then treating them insufficient while the therapist might develop a really good interpersonal relationship with the client. That's usually not sufficient for what they're needing for recovery. So to achieve sexual sobriety and uh, address the underlying issues, typically it's going to require more external support. And this is where group therapy comes in that's, you know, focused on sexual addiction. Now, again, sometimes I've had partners, you know, complain or they'll they'll call up and be like, you know, this is not a sexual addiction recovery program. Their group is not, you know, sexual addiction recovery focused. And sometimes I'm like, OK, well, what, what do you think is going to happen in a sexual addiction therapy group that isn't happening? Right. Because it's not simply... It's not like a 12-step meeting. We're not just replicating a 12-step meeting. Those aren't therapist-led. We're not just, you know, talking about sobriety. Like, you can only talk so many groups about sobriety before we need to be talking about other areas, right? And because we have therapists on board, we can do that. So sometimes it's like, I'm not sure what you're expecting in a sexual addiction group, recovery group, versus not a sexual addiction recovery group. Like, sometimes I, I don't quite understand that. And usually, partners, when they're really upset, don't necessarily have an answer for that. So typically, group therapy, it is focused on sexual addiction, and it's focused on recovery. And it can prove incredibly valuable in this regard. Ideally, we like to have around six to 10 individuals of the same gender. And this group dynamic can help clients realize that their struggles are not unique. That they don't have to try to do this alone. It can help to reduce the pervasive shame that often drives their behavior. I've had clients who attend groups who tell me that their experiencing group, and particularly the connection they developed, was their first experience feeling that they mattered, just as they are as a person, that they had worth or they had value. Group therapy also provides a platform for confronting denial and discussing effective interventions and coping mechanisms. You know, there is nothing better. I like I've been in several groups where, you know, one addict calls out another addict and I am like, there is nothing better than an addict calling out another addict's behavior or being able to say, Hey, just want to remind you, you're in a sexual addiction recovery group. So you might need to look at that behavior a little bit deeper. It's not necessarily shaming. But again, like, you know, it's kind of that saying, an addict can't bullshit another addict, like they get it, they know it. If the group is structured in a way that it is safe and that it's non-judgmental, they can call that out and call that person in in a way that supports their recovery. So I think most importantly, it underscores the availability of guidance and support from various sources especially from fellow recovering addicts. In our clinic, you know, for clients who advance through the various levels of group work, they typically land in what we call an advanced recovery group, where, you know, we can start to explore different topics like attachment, or codependence, or shame resilience, or, I mean, it's kind of an endless category of things that they can explore and work on to help their recovery deepen, and their understanding of both addiction, themselves, and recovery, All of that can happen in a group-supported format, which is great. I think it's crucial to remember that each sex addict possesses a unique background and a distinct sexual and romantic challenges. So a personalized approach tailored to their individual needs, always prioritizing client safety, is essential. Some may thrive in individual therapy, while others really kind of, you start to see them thrive when they enter a group setting Many might require inpatient rehab or an intensive outpatient program to create a temporary separation from triggers related to their addiction and jumpstart their healing process. So when working with a new sexually addicted client, flexibility in treatment approaches is essential, recognizing that what works and what doesn't can vary from one individual to another. There's misconceptions and misinformation abound regarding sexual addiction, particularly concerning the definition of sexual sobriety. Some erroneously believe that clinicians impose their own personal moral or religious views on what constitutes healthy sexual behavior. Again, certified sex addiction therapists should not be adopting this approach. They should know better. CSAT should not be seeking to be the arbiters of sexual conduct. And instead, they should emphasize a sex-positive stance, sexual wellness, sexual health, and encourage all forms of sexual expression. Unless they become obsessive, preoccupied, there's negative consequences, it's out of control. For CSATs, same-sex behaviors, fetishes, kinks, and all other legal and consensual sexual activities should be fully acceptable, even within the context of recovering from sexual addiction. And I think anyone suggesting otherwise is misinformed or they're practicing within their own bias set. Now, another common concern that's often voiced by sex addicts themselves is the fear of long-term abstinence, akin to to recovery from substance use disorders, right? Many wonder if they're going to have to forego a healthy and fulfilling sex life forever if recovery or sobriety from sex addiction equals no sex. Fortunately, sexual sobriety does not equate to prolonged abstinence. So CSATs are going to define sexual sobriety as engaging in sexual activities in non-compulsive, non-problematic, and life-affirming ways rather than advocating permanent celibacy or renouncing specific preferences. I find sometimes with clients, they can move from the compulsive into what we would call the anorexic. And I would say that's not recovery or that's not sexual health. That's an interrupted appetite, right? And, and for some people, the sexual anorexia feels good. It feels a lot better than the out of control preoccupied losing long stretches of time that they lived in in the addiction but we overcorrected right that that's an overcorrection and what we're aiming for is a balanced functional healthy recovery so at this point you might be wondering if sexual sobriety doesn't require lasting sexual abstinence what does it require so the good news and maybe also the bad news if you happen to like rigid rules, is there's no cut-and-dried answer to this question. Every sex addict enters treatment with unique life history, a unique set of compulsive sexual behaviors that are causing problems, and a unique set of goals for their future. Based on these deeply individual factors, each sex addict must create, usually with the help of the therapist, but not based on the therapist's bias, their own definition of sobriety, And this means every sex addict's definition of sexual sobriety is going to be unique. Sexual behaviors that are hugely problematic for one sex addict client might be perfectly fine for another. So generally, recovering sex addicts working with their therapist will create what we call a sexual boundary plan. So it defines sexual sobriety and it guides their behavior in recovery. Most often, these plans are a three-tiered system that lists the problem behavior. So, you know, typically The way that we work that it's called a three circle sobriety plan. So think of it like a bullseye with three circles. So that smallest circle in the, in the middle of the bullseye, which most people are aiming for, that's not what we're aiming for in recovery. That would constitute that smallest circle constitutes what defines relapse for them, what defines living in addiction for them. We have them list specific sexual behaviors that, you know, create the negative consequences that. You know, if they engage in these, they're not considered sexually sober. It's kind of like the client's bottom line definition of sexual sobriety. And then the middle circle can list, like I usually call it the boundary circle. So it's listing things that might be slippery for them. They might, you know, result in a slip. Or like I usually say, this middle circle can either move them more towards that inner circle, it can move them back towards relapse, or it can move them towards the outer circle, that third circle. So, you know, I mean, it can include people, places, emotions, events, experiences, thoughts, fantasies, all of those things that might lead them back towards addiction. And again, not that we can control all of these factors. Like sometimes work might be stressful and stress is one of those that can lead them back towards relapse. But also, if they're addressing that, if they're if that's put on the radar, right, and hey, you being under stress for 2 days or more you need to be reaching out you need to be engaging in some of your outer circle behavior we'll talk about that next in order to manage this like then that's that's fine that's understandable we can't eliminate stress from people's lives we can't totally account for never seeing a particular person again so you know that's the middle boundary and then the the outer circle is going to list healthy behaviors that lead the client toward health and wellness toward their recovery plan. So, you know, this is where maybe it's on a daily or weekly basis, things that they're engaging in that are part of them living a healthy, functional, fulfilled, satisfied life. And it's a list of activities, healthy activities that the client can turn to when they feel triggered to act out sexually, or, you know, they're kind of in that place in the middle circle of I can trend back towards relapse, or I can engage in one of these and, you know, kind of keep me in that outer circle, living my life in recovery. So once again, every sex addict is different. They have a unique life story. They have personal goals. They have specific sexual behaviors that are causing problems. And so each sexual boundary plan is different. And sometimes it looks different from when we start and when we finish, right? There's no set definition of sexual sobriety. There's no formula for recovery that is across the board, uniform to everybody. Conformity is not the goal. Living a healthy, fulfilling, satisfying life is what matters. Again, just to you know, wrap up, to kind of repeat what I've said, for therapists, there shouldn't be a moral code guiding the lens in which they're working with the client, meaning therapists aren't looking at the issue for clients as all porn is good or all porn is bad. We should become part of the problem that clients are working through by adding our own bias, or our own moral and religious beliefs. Most clients come to therapy because there's something in their life that's causing a problem. Whether that's addiction, or a mental health issue like anxiety, depression, unresolved trauma, relationship issues, it can also include pornography issues. Or they're strongly encouraged by somebody to come to therapy. So again, I just want to go over the factors that we're looking for when we're talking about addiction. We're talking about preoccupation. So this preoccupation on sexual behavior is becoming a point of obsession, which leads to a loss of control over their use. They've tried to quit. They've tried to cut back and they fail at that. They spend hours amassing porn. You know, I've had clients who then in a moment of I'm going to cut back, they delete it all. Or I've had them, you know, before internet porn was such a big thing. They throw it in some dumpster and, you know, walk away and then the next day they're back in the dumpster trying to find what they threw away. Or if they, you know, digitally erase it all, they're back into this like binge cycle of trying to re-amass what they lost. And then there's negative consequences. They're having problems in their life that are directly related to their porn use. It might be relationship problems. It might be problems at work or school. It can be legal issues. It can be a loss of interest in other activities that used to bring meaning and satisfaction. Their life starts falling apart, right? It starts to become unmanageable. And so again, it's not about how much or what you're watching, as it is about what is happening to your life. You are losing your life. And addiction is not a way to live life. It's not a satisfactory. It's not a meaningful way of living life. So I hope that this podcast helped explain some things. We went into some depths. That'll prep the next podcast that Rachel and I will be just having more of a discussion around how to stop watching porn. I hope this has been helpful. And again, I hope, you know, whether you're listening to this at the beginning of year or not, I hope you're having the life that you want. I hope that you are You know, in your search, probably if you're listening to this podcast, you are searching for understanding. I hope that this helps. And at the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The legal stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help